would you please open your Bibles with me to um, uh, Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, page 1021 in the Pew Bibles. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16 and ending in verse 30. <clears throat> I'll read it and then I'll pray and then we'll move on from that. reads this. And he, that is Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the, cliff, of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, Unless you build the, build the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless you watch over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And now, Lord God, we confess that unless the Holy Spirit illumines the word to our hearts, all the preaching of a thousand angels is in, is in vain. We pray, dear Lord, 
that your word would go forth, that Christ would be glorified, and that his name would be spread abroad throughout all the nations. Oh God, we come here, Lord, to worship you. We pray, Lord, that you would do this in us, that you would work through us, Lord God, as the Holy Spirit broods over us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this summer, <clears throat> just give you a roadmap of where we're going. Um, I plan on doing five sermons in Luke, and then five more in the letter of Philippians, and maybe one more somewhere else. Um, so maybe you're wondering then, why start with this passage in Luke? Why is this passage so significant for Luke? Why would I start here of all places? Um, well, this is the reason. This passage is the first episode in Jesus' public ministry. And if you read in verse, uh, verses 14 and 15 and verse 23, we know that Jesus already started his public ministry, but for Luke... Luke actually, actually puts this deliberately in the front. So this event, this synagogue event, actually shows up in Matthew and Mark as well, but it, but it occurs considerably later in those Gospels. So Luke deliberately places this story right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Why? Why would Luke do that? Why would he place this story right at the beginning? Well, it's because this narrative, this episode, this scene, gives us the first impression of what Jesus' ministry will be like. It's like the opening scene of a movie. It's like the heading of a paragraph. It's like a mission statement of a company. What we see here by Luke placing this first, is that Luke wants this to be a lens through which to read Jesus' public ministry. He wants this narrative to govern and shape the way we understand the rest of the gospel. So this passage really is absolutely crucial to understanding Jesus' public ministry. It's crucial. It shows us what kind of Messiah he is. It tells us what exactly is his primary mission. So that's what I want us to know this morning. That's my hope. That we will have a correct understanding of Jesus' primary mission. Why he came to earth. Because there are so many wrong ideas of what his primary mission is. Why did he come? Was it to be a social revolutionary? Was it merely to give us good lessons and moral exhortations? Was it merely just to be a good example for us? I want to know, what is Jesus' mission? And this is so crucial because it shapes the way we understand our own mission. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. The title is Jesus Announces His Mission, and we'll see it in two points here. You should have that little insert in your bulletin. 
the purpose of the mission in verses 16 to 21, and then the scope of the mission in verses 22 to 30. So look at verse 16 here, the purpose of the mission. Jesus was gaining popularity already in the region, and now he finally returns to his hometown in Nazareth. So you can imagine the headlines, right? Jesus, rising star, returns home. You can see the flyers. Jesus preaching in the synagogue this Saturday. His reputation preceded him. These people were excited and eager to hear from this rising star, this hometown boy. So Jesus goes to the hometown synagogue, the same synagogue he attended, he attended since he was a child. And then in verses 18 and 19, he reads from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 2, and Isaiah 58, 6. And it's an Old Testament passage about a promised Messiah. It's this Old Testament passage about this hope of a future salvation for Israel. We'll look at that later, but for now, look at verse 20. Notice how Luke decelerates the narrative. He slows it down. You can almost imagine it in slow motion. Look at it. He says, he rolled up the scroll, gave it to the attendant, sat down. And in the synagogue, they didn't preach standing up like I'm doing now. They preached sitting down. Then the eyes of all in the synagogue, the eyes of all of them were fixed on him. So Luke is deliberately increasing the dramatic tension here. It's as if the room is dead silent. You can see your heart beat through your shirt. Here's this people. They've waited centuries for a Messiah. They were yearning for this salvation for generations. And here's this Jesus what will he say? Will he say, be encouraged. The Messiah will one day arrive. Will he say, don't lose heart. Salvation is near. No. What does Jesus say? What is the very first comment on this passage? Jesus says, today, Today, this scripture, this hope of a Messiah is fulfilled in me. Today, I am the Messiah. I've come to bring salvation to the very present. Today, it's here and now. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, this prophecy about the Messiah refers to me. Look at verses 18 and 19. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has sent me. Jesus is saying, I am the Spirit anointed one. I am the one God sent. 
And this is so pivotal in the Gospel of Luke because, because the previous chapters and all the previous chapters, we hear about who Jesus is from several other witnesses. We didn't look at it, I know that, but in chapters 1 through 3, we hear who Jesus is from Zechariah and Elizabeth. We hear it from an angel of Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. We hear it from Anna and John the Baptist. But this is the first time, the first time we hear Jesus himself claim to be the Messiah. It's the very first time that we hear the character of Jesus' ministry from the very time we hear Jesus' self-understanding. We hear what his mission is, how he sees his own role. So then, what's his mission? Well, look at verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? What was the point of being anointed? What was the point of having the Spirit come upon him? What was the point of being the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ? What does it say there? To proclaim good news to the poor. That's his mission. It's to proclaim, to reveal, to tell of God's salvation. And do you notice how key that term is to proclaim? See how many times it appears in that prophecy? Look at it. It says in verses 18 and 19, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And if you look at Luke chapter 4, verse 43, it's there on the other column of the Bible. He said to them, look at this. I must do what? I must preach, proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well for I was sent for this purpose. In other words, Jesus came to reveal God's salvation to us. He is the supreme prophet of God. He is the fullest expression of who God is. All the Old Testament prophets would say, Thus saith the Lord. They said words about God. But look here, verse 24. What does Jesus say? He says, Truly I say to you. Why? Because Jesus is God. The ancient prophets spoke words about and from God, but Jesus is the Word of God in human flesh. And what he came to reveal about God was good news to the poor. So then, who are the poor? Do you see those four groups 
in verses 18 to 19. He says it's salvation or good news for the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. So now we have to be very careful here. Included in this idea of the poor, captive, blind, and oppressed, included in that is those who are literally and physically poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. But Jesus also had something in mind that was far deeper than that. In fact, if you think about it, um, Jesus didn't come mainly to release the poor from poverty. His main goal wasn't the alleviation of financial impoverishment. Jesus Christ himself was very poor. His goal wasn't to increase the standard of living. Neither did he release everyone from prison. What happened to John the Baptist? He didn't release John the Baptist from prison. That wasn't his main goal either. His main goal wasn't even to heal everyone. He did heal the blind and he did heal the crippled, but he didn't he never healed everyone. He was very selective. So yes, Jesus fed the hungry. He gave sight to the blind, and he released people from oppression, and we should be very concerned about that as well. But these miracles and these good works always pointed to something deeper. So then what's that deeper thing that he's talking about? If he didn't mean physical deliverance, what did he mean? Well, there's another crucial term in this prophecy, and it appears twice in verses 18 and 19. It's the word liberty. He has sent me to do what? Proclaim liberty. He has sent me to set at liberty. So Christ came not only to proclaim liberty, to tell us about it, he actually sets us, sets us at liberty, meaning He also accomplishes that. He doesn't only tell us about liberty. He is the liberator. So then what does that word mean, liberty? What is the main idea here with that word? Now this term, this term means release, release. And it's so important because it's the exact same word used for the term forgiveness. In Luke chapter 1, let me read some citations here from Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 77. The Messiah comes to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the liberty or forgiveness or release of their sins. Or Luke chapter 3, verse 3. John the Baptist was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the release or forgiveness of sins. Or Luke chapter 24, a very, very important chapter. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47. It reads this. It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness or liberty or release 
of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So in other words, the liberty Jesus came to proclaim and accomplish is not primarily the liberty from poverty. It's not primarily liberty from shackles and prison walls. It's not primarily liberty from physical disabilities. He came to grant his liberty for something that's far more evil, something with far more permanent results, something that's far more deep and serious. He came to grant his liberty from the guilt and polluting influence of sin. This is why he refers to the year of the Lord's favor in verse 19. You see that, right? The year of the Lord's favor. What is that? Well, it was, it was a year appointed by God to Israel. Every 50 years, God commanded Israel to release indentured servants and to forgive financial debts for all the nation. So Jesus is saying, this year of the Lord's favor about the forgiveness of financial debt in Israel, this was pointing to something else. This was pointing to something far greater. And it's the release, it's the liberty, it's the forgiveness of sins. The poor... The poor are those who feel themselves helpless in their sin with nothing to bargain with God. The captives are those who have been under the dominion and guilt and power of sin and can't escape. The blind are those who can't see the light of God's truth and walk in darkness. The oppressed are those abused under the dominion of Satan. The mission of Christ, then, is to bring liberty to those guilty, oppressed, powerless souls who are are unable to lift a finger to do God's will, unable to do anything to better their spiritual lot. Christ came to give liberty to those in captivity and bondage to sin. That's Christ's mission statement. To liberate us from sin. Meaning we have to have this right priority in mind, okay? When we we read the Gospels, yes, we should follow Jesus Christ's example. Yes, the gospel transforms the way we live. But Jesus' primary mission is not to give us a new code of ethics. His primary mission is not about giving instructions on how we should live. His primary mission isn't giving us a manifesto of social and political reform. It's not about being an example of good behavior. His mission is not about what you do. It's not about you. 
His mission is about what he does for you. It's about what Christ accomplishes for us. Christ didn't come to proclaim good advice. He came to proclaim good news. In the 1930s, there was this man named J. Gresham Machen, and he was one of the founders of the Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And he, and he was giving these radio talks in a local radio station, and this topic came up called Christian Liberalism. <clears throat> And the idea was that Christ's fundamental mission is to give ethical instructions. So that in that way, it doesn't really matter if Jesus came in history. What matters really is the moral principles of Jesus Christ. The gospels can be fabricated. It doesn't really matter. It's like Aesop's fables or the Lord of the Rings. It's a good fable, it's a good fable but it's truth is only in the timeless lessons it gives. And then Machen, he responded and he said this. He said, you are mocking me when you talk to me like that. What I need, first of all, is not moral exhortation, but a gospel not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of the way God has saved me. And then he asks, have you any good news for me? And I'm here to say yes. Christ didn't come to mock us, to dangle salvation above us, to tell us to try harder and jump higher. As if, If he didn't come into history, it doesn't matter. If he didn't come into history, if he didn't actually bring about liberty from sin through his life, death, and resurrection, if all we had was good lessons and a five-step program to a good life, the Bible just mocks us. Don't just tell me how to be a good person. Tell me about the Savior. I don't just need lessons. I need a liberator. And praise God, that's what Christ came to do. He came to liberate us from our sin. He came to do what we could not. purpose of his mission is to liberate us from sin. But the passage, it doesn't end there, does it? A turn of events occurs here in verses 20 to 30. Very strange, very strange. So let's look at the scope of the mission in verses 22 to 30. Interestingly, his hometown Nazareth They don't reject this salvation. Look at verse 22. 
all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So they didn't deny the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, they were very overjoyed and they accepted him. But then as we read, what happens in verses 28 to 30? They wanted to throw him off a cliff. So what in the world happened? How did they go from this elated acceptance of Jesus Christ to wanting him dead? What happened? It's so strange. Why, what, what, what occurred that, that causes sudden turn of public opinion? Well, we have some idea here in verse 22. Look at the question they ask. Is not this Joseph's son? He, he's Joseph's kid, right? You know the Joseph who, who lives down the road? The one who owns a carpentry shop? That Joseph, right? And they say, yeah. He's one of us. He's a Nazarene. He was born and raised, meaning the Messiah, he'll give us special privilege, local preference. We're family, Jesus. We're connected by blood ties. And then Jesus says in verse 23, he reveals their thoughts to them, and he says, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So they think that just as a physician would heal members of his own body, the Messiah will automatically do works among the members of his hometown. That just as a physician's immediate body receives special attention, the Messiah's own immediate, immediate family and neighbors will receive special attention. If he did works at Capernaum, then surely, by virtue of our family connections, Jesus do good works here as well. And this is shocking. Look how Jesus responds in verse 24. He says, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now, what does that mean? It means this. The Nazarenes wanted special privilege for being the hometown of the Messiah. But Jesus will not give them that. He will not be governed by in-group loyalties. He will not grant any special privilege based on the flesh. Why? Because the scope of his mission is not confined to his hometown. The scope of his mission was outward and universal. And because of that, 
they do not accept him. They thought Jesus' ministry, the ministry of the Messiah, was like a funnel. All the nations will pour into Israel and become like Israel. But Jesus is saying, no, my ministry is like a fountain. It pours outward. It starts in Israel, but then it goes outward. And this is why he refers to Elijah and Elisha here, doesn't he? God didn't send Elijah and Elisha, these Old Testament prophets, back to their hometowns in Israel. God doesn't do that. God sends them out to Gentiles, to outsiders. There were fountains, not funnels. So look at verse 25 and verse 27. What does it say? There were many widows in Israel. Or verse 27. There were many lepers in Israel. So there were many people in need in Israel. But what happened? Verse 26. Elijah was sent to none of them. Or verse 27. None of them was cleansed by Elisha. The prophets Elijah and Elisha were not sent inward. What does it say in verse 26? Where did Elijah go? To Zarephath in the land of Sidon. Or with Elisha, where did Elisha go? To Naaman the Syrian. They went out to Gentiles, to outsiders. Jesus is saying, just as Elijah and Elisha was sent out, just as the scope of their mission was not limited to their hometowns in Israel, so too am I not limited to my hometown in Nazareth. It wasn't the fact that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah that made them angry. It was his rejection of their special privilege to the Messiah that got them angry. Jesus was rejected because of his outward, impartial, universal scope of his mission. And what's remarkable is that by referring to these Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus is saying that this outward, impartial, universal scope of his mission, this follows the pattern of Scripture. This was God's intention all along. And this is so important because it means this. Not only is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, not only does that fulfill Scripture, but the outward and universal spread of the good news fulfills Scripture. Proclamation is not simply a way of spreading the news. Proclamation is part of what is fulfilled in Scripture. Do you understand that? Not only is Christ's salvation part of God's mission, the proclamation of Christ's salvation is part of God's mission. Look at Luke chapter 4, verse 42 again. It's just further down there. It says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him. And now listen. 
and would have kept him from leaving them. They wanted to restrict Jesus, say, Jesus, stay here. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. Jesus is not static. And at the end of Luke, in chapter 24, verses 46 to 47, listen closely. Listen to this. Thus it is written. So this is scripture. He's saying, thus it is written. This has to be fulfilled. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That has to happen. The Messiah came to die and to be raised on the third day. But then it goes on. It says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's part of the fulfillment of Scripture. The proclamation of the good news to the nations is part of the fulfillment of Scripture. God isn't only happy to have Christ die and be resurrected. God wants this good news of salvation to be published. He wants it to be proclaimed on the mountaintops. He wants it to to radiate outwards like this seismic earthquake that has these ripple effects throughout the world. And we see this impulse this outward impulse, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We see it right here, starting right at his hometown in Nazareth. That's why Luke puts that there. And it's interesting in the Gospel of Luke, it's very interesting because Luke is very intentional about tracking the movement of Jesus Christ. Luke constantly reminds us that Jesus is set on a journey to Jerusalem. There's this geographic progression. We can almost see his every footstep. Listen, it says in 951, chapter 9, verse 51, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Or chapter 13, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Chapter 18, and taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. In chapter 19, verse 11, it says, He was near to Jerusalem. So Luke is showing this journey of Jesus Christ, this this geographic progression. He's saying that nothing will distract Jesus from this path of his mission. He is resolute. Luke is saying Jesus is unstoppable in his mission to die and to be resurrected. And this is very important because who wrote the book of Acts? Yes, Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts as well. We have to see both of these books, two parts of one whole. And why is that significant? Because in Acts, there is also this geographic progression There is also this tracking of movement. 
In Acts, we see this movement towards Jerusalem rebound outward. We see this movement now begins in Jerusalem and moves outward. In fact, at the end of Luke, the passage I keep reading over and over again, it says, Thus it is written that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then in the very beginning of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, it says this. This is Jesus talking to his apostles, to his disciples. He says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So starting in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So in Acts, we see this progression outward. In Luke, we see Jesus going to Jerusalem. In Acts, we see the gospel going outward. Both fulfill scripture. So then, here's my point. Just as surely as no sword in heaven or on earth can stop Jesus Christ and his journey to die, just as there is no obstacle that can throw Jesus off his path, just as his purpose to save us from our sins cannot be thwarted by the temptations of Satan, by false accusations, or by death itself, so too can nothing stop the spread of the gospel to all the nations. God will see to it that it is fulfilled. If Jesus was resolute to die in Jerusalem, God will bring this good news to the nations. He will do it. Nothing can stop the good news from going out to the world. The name of Jesus Christ will not stay at home. His name his presence, his good news will go out. And as we are united to Christ, aren't we called to the same mission? Christ isn't standing at home and saying, go over there, church. Christ is out there, and he's saying, join me. There's this man named John D. Rockefeller. Maybe you've heard of him. <laughs> um, who is this oil industry business ty- tycoon. Uh, he died in 1937. And... <clears throat> If inflated for, or if, if adjusted for inflation, some consider him to be the wealthiest American to ever live. And someone once asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money does it take for a man to be happy? Maybe you've heard of this. He responded, just one more dollar. And actually, when I first walked into this church, one of the first things that caught my attention, well, it's over there. It says, welcome to Beacon Light. One 
more soul to Christ. How many souls to Christ will it take to make us happy? Just one more soul. We were never meant to be static. We were never meant to be hometown, closed-in, self-focused people. The church has three purposes. It's to worship God, to edify and strengthen believers, to proclaim the good news to the nations. And oh, what a tragedy it is if this last purpose is lost. If we think Jesus' ministry is a funnel and not a fountain, to become claustrophobic rather than outward, to think we've got the mission accomplished if we have our theology down pat, or that we've done our duty if the worship service is perfected. Or even worse, to be more concerned with the mission statement of a company than with the mission statement of God. To be enslaved to the American success system, so enslaved that we're not free to participate and the mission of Christ. To not listen to the words of that great, <clears throat> that great missionary, William Carey, who said, I don't fear failure. I fear succeeding in things that don't matter. Where are those who say that? I'm afraid of succeeding in things that don't matter. Where are those who know the liberty of sin? Where are those who can say in their heart, one more soul to Christ? Christ came to proclaim good news to the poor to liberate us from sin. And the scope of his mission is universal. And now we participate in that great mission. Well, then let's pray. Father in heaven, we admit, Lord, that in ourselves we are weak and we can do nothing apart from the Holy Spirit so we ask, Lord God, that the Spirit would work in our hearts to see the gloriousness of the good news of Jesus Christ, that we will be captivated by it, Lord, that it will move us, and that, dear God, that it would move us to be outward-facing, that, Lord God, we would not be merely hometown people, but that we would see the gospel and its purpose to go out through the world and to the nations to Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria and to Rome and to Spain and to America and to Chicago and to Gary, Indiana. 
we pray, dear Lord, that we would see that this, this mission is also part of the fulfillment of Scripture and that, dear God, no one, no one can stop you in fulfilling it. So grant us, dear Lord, not a defeatist or fatalistic mentality, but one of great conviction and courage and confidence that, God, you are working in this world and you will see to it that it is accomplished. We pray, dear Lord, that you would do this in us. In Jesus' name, amen.